I would like to welcome you to the USF podcast. Hi, welcome to Universal Student Fund's podcast. Today we're with Lynn Revo Cohen, the creation, and she has the creation of the New Point Strategies business. I'd like to welcome you here today. Thank you, Linda. Yeah, so do you want to explain the business a little bit, how you got started, what excited you to create this? Sure, be happy to. First of all, thank you uh, for asking me to participate. I think the work that you're doing is incredible. And, uh, okay. Hats off to you for that. So I'm happy to be part of it. Happy to have you. So. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my business um, was actually initially founded in 1984, which is some time ago. Um, before that time, I had been a lobbyist on Capitol Hill. Awesome. And uh, I had been working for 10 years lobbying for uh, women's employment issues. Mm -hmm. And so we did the whole range of issues from alternative work schedules, part-time, flex-time, child care, um, equal pay. Mm -hmm. And uh, equal pay became a real big issue uh, for me and uh, the work that I was doing at that time. And so I was out there lobbying for about 10 years, and then the political climate changed a bit to become more conservative at that time. And um, I was thinking that, you know, companies really are under some obligation to do something about these issues at this point in terms of equal pay and equal employment opportunities. And companies really didn't have a clue how. Mm -hmm. And so I thought if, if I really want to be a change agent, probably my best opportunity to be a change agent would be to provide services directly to the companies and organizations that had to implement these policies. Yeah, that's really exciting. So we started the company. My business partner is Coretta Hubbard, and mm -hmm. she and I were lobbyists together. And so we started the company initially in 1984. Okay. And we started, our very first contract was a pay equity study for the state of Ohio. So it was a very big contract to start with. And um, um, uh, Dick Celeste was the governor. Mm -hmm. And uh, they passed a very progressive pay equity uh, piece of legislation that required them to do a study of the state workforce to measure uh, the um, salaries of women and men and see if there were discrepancies. And so we were hired to do that. And we did a successful study for the state of Ohio, and it did indeed show significant disparities uh, between the male-dominated and female-dominated jobs. And that was how we got started. And we then did about a dozen more state and local studies. Uh, Canada at that time had a very progressive government and required both public and private sector employers to do pay equity. And so we started an office in Canada and hired Canadian staff, and we did studies all over the country. Um, and that's where we started doing private sector work. Uh, the whole Southland newspaper chain and our biggest study for pay equity in Canada was with Bell Canada up in Quebec. Mm -hmm. So that's how we got started. And um, we did pay equity work for the first 10 years of our business. And then the environment kind of changed. Mm -hmm. And pay equity, there wasn't the money for those studies anymore. Um, and it kind of fell away. It was still a problem, but it sort of fell away from the public discourse and uh, the political energy behind making employers do stuff. Mm -hmm. faded a little bit. So um, we reinvented ourselves. 
and there was a lot of work that needed to be done around what we now call diversity and inclusion, uh, but in those days was called more race relations uh, kinds of issues. Those companies were having to deal with the new diversity in their workplace, and they really were having a lot of difficulties. Old habits, old cultural patterns, that kind of thing. So we uh, brought in one of my mentors, Dorothy Nelms, who is an attorney, to start up a whole practice for us in sexual harassment, um, EEO, diversity, what we now call diversity and inclusion, which encompasses the whole range of issues around race, gender, ethnicity, and uh, sexual orientation, uh, age issues, uh, issues around religion and disability, etc. So we sort of changed our focus from pay equity at that time to those issues and have been in business since then. We're now known as New Point Strategies, um, and um, that's our sweet spot where we've done our business over the last uh, 15 years in, in particular. Um, we did um, have a little bit of a shift about 10 years ago. We were hired by West Point to do a study on sexual assault. Uh, it was during the days when the other military academies were getting a lot of negative publicity for sexual assault at the academies, and West Point wanted to be sure they weren't going to be the next one, and so they hired us to do a study of what their policies were and how they were teaching the issue of sexual assault and what kind of recommendations we could give them. So that brought us into the whole world of um, not only sexual harassment, but sexual assault. And over the past four years, we've been doing work for the military, over the last three years for the Navy on sexual assault prevention. And that has become, unfortunately, a very big area of our business because those issues are prevalent not only throughout the military, uh, but also at colleges, as you young women know from hearing from younger people that this is an issue that is plaguing colleges all over the country. So we are now doing uh, sexual assault prevention um, is, is one of the biggest part of our uh, newer part of our business. Wow, that's really so. exciting that you guys were able to do so much and grow and change and adapt. Um, so what what do you think is one of the biggest problems that people have to deal with in the office work, like places with sexual harassment? Like, how could people avoid being in those situations? Like, what would you give a, a, advice to a woman? It's a great question, um, and it evolves. You know, the kinds of issues that we were dealing with 20 years ago, uh, were much different than the kinds of issues that we're dealing with now, and the level of awareness is so much greater now. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it really revolves around the issue of culture and culture creating a culture change. Uh, one of the things that we learned in doing work uh, at, in the military is that in an environment that tolerates sexual jokes and banter and disparaging comments about women, mm -hmm. the women in those commands are 60% more likely to experience sexual assault. Mm -hmm. So when you're trying to make an impact to change behavior, you really have to look at the culture and you have to see what is going on in our day-to-day -day conversations, in the kinds of things that are happening that may be a reflection of what you're hearing in the news, that people talk about the next day, 
Um, and you need, if you're the employer, you need to be very careful about being sure that your managers and supervisors and team leaders know what is expected of them if inappropriate behavior happens. If you're on the employee side and you're the, you know, the victim of that kind of behavior, you need to know that you can say something. Um, and if you're a colleague of someone who's the victim of that kind of behavior, what we teach is something called bystander intervention. Mm -hmm. And that is that it's not just the manager's job to step in, uh, and it's not just your own job to step up and say that's not right. But if you are the friend of somebody who's a victim of that kind of behavior, harassment, a bad joke even, um, teasing inappropriately, um, inappropriate um, quid pro quo situations, you do this for me and I'll do this for you, which happens quite a bit. Um, if you're the colleague of that person, it's also your job to step up and support that person and say, you know what, that joke's not cool. Mm -hmm. We don't tell those kinds of jokes anymore. Um, that's disparaging to my colleagues, um, my sister, my colleague, my coworker. That stuff's not cool. We don't do that anymore here. If that colleague decides to report them, will it count or like as like will it count? as like a report or do you have to be the person harassed in order for it to count? As soon as a manager knows that there is a problem, um, it, it, they uh, have the responsibility to investigate. Mm -hmm. So a manager can't uh, just sort of brush it off and say, well, Joe, that's just Joe. Um, and he's really, he's, he's our A player. You know, we, we can't do anything to throw him off his game. When that manager or supervisor knows that inappropriate behavior that is illegal, um, sexual harassment is, you know, is, is, is a violation, um, they are obligated to do something about it. So yes, it counts. Uh, as soon as a manager knows, that manager has the job of doing something about that. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, then it creates a liability for the company. Because the, the liability works its way up the chain. Mm -hmm. So if it's my company and my managers aren't doing the right thing to stop that behavior, then that accountability lies with me mm -hmm. as the owner of the company. So there are, you know, we call it high-risk behavior for a reason. Um, if that kind of behavior is not dealt with, then there are serious liabilities for the organization. Mm -hmm. So if I could shift back, you were mentioning sexual assault. Yes. Earlier. Yes. I feel that in the media... And a lot of social discourse seems to be centered lately around um, victim shaming or victim blaming. Yes. Do you feel, you know, whether it be in, you know, a social setting, public or private, military, that that's decreased over the years? And how can we better address to make someone understand how they're inadvertently blaming the victim for bringing, you know, supposedly bringing on assault when... It's a great question. They didn't welcome it. It's a great question. We do a lot around victim blaming. When we do training, when, whether it's Navy or uh, at a corporation, um, say we have 30 people in a room. We break them up into small groups and we give them case studies. And so one of those case studies might have been around a group of people talking about a sexual assault. And they would say, well, did you see the way she was dressed? 
you know, she was asking for it, you know, or she drank too much, she shouldn't have been drinking, and she shouldn't look like that. Can't blame the guy. So we present that situation in a small group and ask them to talk about it. And what comes out of this is that it is never um, the victim's fault. Um, sexual assault is against the law. Mm -hmm. And it's no more the victim's fault in a sexual assault than it is a victim's fault in a robbery. You know, because you went to the bank and got money at an ATM, does that mean you're at fault because somebody robbed you? Uh, it's the same thing with victim blaming. Um, if the person was inebriated, uh, that person is not able to give consent. And that's sort of the rules now at most universities and in the military. If you are incapacitated because you are sleeping, because you have had too much to drink, because someone has drugged you, you cannot give consent. And somebody having sex with you under those circumstances would be guilty of sexual, would be accused of, rightfully accused of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. So victim blaming is not tolerated. And um, people often do it without even knowing they're victim blaming. You know, it's one of these things that people do when they're joking around and trying to make excuses for somebody. Um, but you need to call it what it is, victim blaming, and it is not the victim's fault. It is never the victim's fault. And we actually have one of the things that I want to talk about is where we're going mm -hmm. in terms of new technology and, and new growth. And I was going to show you this before we started, but I can show it to you afterwards. Okay, yeah, that'd be lovely. Um, one of the challenges with training now is that um, there are time issues. Everybody is so time-strapped. Uh, that to think that people are going to have a whole day to put aside for training is not always realistic. Um, people have so much on their mind. They're multitasking all the time, especially young people, the millennials and the Generation Z who are even younger. Um, you know, they grew up with this in their hand. And so this is where they live. And so if we want to get to the younger generation, we got to go where they live. And so we've developed tools now that are mobile and provide short um, learning tips on the whole range of high-risk behavior. And we do it so that it's accessible on any mobile device that you have. And we call that Quick Points. It's one of our new uh, technology tools. And what we learned from studying the millennials and how, you know, I, I have a whole speech on how do how does the digital generation learn. And um, they want things that are accessible on their phone, on their iPad, on their laptop. They want it to be visual. You know, they love video, just like we're doing today. Video is the thing. They want it to be short. Nobody's got time. Nobody's got even an hour. You know, we, we often do online training that's an hour in length. Well, who's got an hour? So we now use quick points to get hot-button issues, issues of the day, quickly to somebody on their phone or on their iPad or on their laptop that are engaging, that are um, share-worthy. You know, you want to you get somebody to think it's cool and send it to their colleagues. So it's got to be visual, it's got to be accessible, it's got to be engaging, and it has to be relevant. So our quick points are very much tied to things that are happening in the news. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole issue around banning Muslims, Exhibit A. We have a quick point 
that I'm going to show you on an ethnic joke about traveling with a colleague who happens to be a Muslim. And so those kinds of things happen. People talk about it in, you know, it's a political year. All, mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff is going to get talked about. And that will happen the next day. Everyone's going to be talking about what happened at the debate last night. Right. And that's where the bad jokes happen and the inappropriate behavior. So um, our goal is to make learning relevant to the people that need to have it every day and to leverage the things that happen in the news, whether this week it's policing and racial profiling. Um, it was banning Muslims and it's transgender issues. You know, we have a whole workshop on how to deal with, you know, the, the issues that came up in North Carolina around, you know, insisting that someone go to the bathroom that matches their birth certificate. Mm -hmm. um, that's creating a lot of problems. So, and a lot of inappropriate discourse at work. People joking around about it, not understanding, not realizing they could be hurting somebody who's mm -hmm. sitting right next to them. So we will do a quick point that relates to something that's relevant, something that people are talking about. Okay. And pay equity is another one of those. That's now back in the public discourse. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, the candidates are talking about it. So that's how we make the learning relevant. And we get it in front of people because they need to know what to do. Something's happening today. Uh, someone said something today. I need to know what to do. So having a, a mobile tool that gets people information very quickly mm -hmm. is, is how we're dealing with that. Right. And that's, I think, where our, that's how we've leveraged technology and sort of the cultural changes that are happening to get to the next generation learning solution is what we mm -hmm. call it. Cool. So <clears throat> beyond, you know, I think that those are, that's wonderful that you're able to reach people on a more mobile mm -hmm. level because it's mm -hmm. very important to be instant, you know, have instant gratification these days. Yep. Yep. But also I could go back to sure. your women's equal pay yes. is a hot issue. It is. And some of the tools y'all are using um, engage people based on what the media is talking about. Yes. Is there anything in your opinion that the media tends to overlook that is a serious issue in addition to equal pay that women still face today? in the workplace? I, I think the media is doing a pretty good job now of covering um, the issues because women who are very prominent are talking about it. You know, okay. Sheryl Sandberg okay. is talking about it. Um, uh, you know, the candidates are talking about it. Um, people in the, you know, on television are talking about it. So the media would, you know, they're picking up things that they wouldn't have 10 years ago because of social media. Um, but things that are less well talked about are still uh, sort of the work family issues mm -hmm. that women who are parents have to, men and women who are parents have to deal with. You know, how do you juggle? Everyone's working 24-7 because their work follows them home. How do you juggle that? In a way, you know, how do you travel the way you have to travel uh, when you have little kids at home, especially if you're a single parent? You know, so work-family balance never goes away. It doesn't get a whole lot of attention now because most companies are doing whatever they can to allow people to telework, work from home, work from wherever they are. Um, but just the time demand 
of raising children and having a full-time demanding job at the same time is very, very taxing. So I think the media is not covering that as much as some of the more high-profile issues like sexual assault, Mm -hmm. sexual harassment, some of the racial issues now are getting more attention. But those issues deserve a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, Are there other issues that that you're thinking of in terms of... No, you basically hit it on the oh, head. Okay. Especially, okay. In, in my opinion, a lot of homes are single-parent homes for yes. whatever reason. Maybe, you know, the wife is in Afghanistan, active right. duty. The husband's at home. Does he get maternity leave? Do, you know, do his co-workers respect that he also needs to take his children to soccer practice and be yes. there for them? Are they still getting the same quality of home life, you know, that they would be getting if it were a mother? Yes. And I think, you know, people can easily classify everyone into certain sectors that, right you know and it's a little more blurred these days um, it is. men and women play equal roles in mm-hmm. a lot of different ways and I feel like that could you know garner a little more attention than you're right. what I see you're right well the more progressive companies are really doing a lot on paternity leave google's a good example I happen to know this because my son-in-law works there um, you get paternity leave. You know, they have two children now, my daughter and son-in-law, and he got paternity. She got maternity leave. She works at PepsiCo, and he got paternity leave. He works at Google. So between the two of them, they had all the flexibility that they needed. Um, and and progressive companies, I think, um, especially in the in the tech world and some of the major corporations that support working women and um, the issues that working families have to deal with uh, are doing a much better job at making sure that men have the same opportunity to share, you know, because men now do. It's a whole different world Mm -hmm. where men are taking part in going to the games and driving kids around. It's different now. Yeah. What are your thoughts on like earlier education systems for like children? Because I remember I went to a briefing like a week ago and they were talking about how they wanted to make like elementary schools start earlier to help working parents. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I see on a personal level, Mm -hmm. I see the benefit of preschool uh, looking at my my grandchildren. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a professional view on it as well. But from a personal point of view, my daughter who works at PepsiCo and son-in-law works at Google, have two little guys that are both under three. They are full-time at Chelsea Pierce uh, daycare. And they have amazing skills. Even the two-year-old is now talking, you know, and for a two-year-old boy, that's very advanced. And it's because they have a very enriched early childhood education that many people don't have the opportunity to have because they're not working for those kinds of companies. Um, That's why I'm such a huge proponent of Head Start and anything to get kids that don't have those kinds of resources into early childhood education because they get socialized better. Mm -hmm. They get access to, um, uh, you know, reading and conversation and learning how to get along with other kids. Mm -hmm. So it couldn't be more important. And I hope whoever wins the next election, I hope their focus is on early childhood education. Yeah, definitely. It makes a huge difference. Well, is there anything else you'd like us to go over before we um, close out? Well, your focus is on entrepreneurship, right? Yes. For young people. Um, I think the thing that I always think about that helped us 
couple of things. Mm -hmm. One is to, to have no fear. Um, people look at starting a business as a really scary thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it can be a little bit daunting. But, you know, the advice that I would give any young person is um, don't let that stop you. Um, there's a lot you have to learn. When I started my business, I knew nothing about business. I was a lobbyist. You know, what did I know about business? And I learned it as I had to. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, it would have been easier if I had had an MBA to start the business, but I had a passion. I really wanted to move the world, change the world on, on women's employment issues. Pay equity was a huge one. So I wasn't afraid of all of the hard stuff because I knew that I had an avenue to achieve a difference if I was in there working with organizations to help them. So I think that no fear piece mm -hmm. is an important thing. I mean, um, I had the advantage of another income in my family. Uh, you know, my husband is a lawyer and mm -hmm. he was working at the time. So it took six months to get that first contract and I had the comfort of knowing we weren't going to starve. But it was still scary. You know, what if I failed? Yeah, I could have easily failed. And um, having no fear really helped me. Um, it also helped me to be nimble. You know, when the pay equity market died off in the 90s, mm -hmm. if I hadn't been nimble, we would have gone out of business. So I had to see, okay, I had to look carefully enough to know what's the next issue that's going to come up. Mm -hmm. And it was obvious at that time that it was going to be diversity issues and sexual harassment issues. And so we thought, you know, that's where the next ticket is for us. Let's get some expertise and bring some people in. And mm -hmm. it's so important to stay connected to other people because I stayed connected to my mentor at Federally Employed Women who then came in and helped me build that part of my business. Um, and if you stay nimble and you're always, you know, with one eye looking at what's coming down the road, um, you're going to be more successful because you're going to be ready for the future. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was wonderful speaking with you. Thank you. And um, is there any websites for New Point Strategies that you want our listeners to Yes, www.newpoint.biz. B-I-Z. You have just listened to another episode of the USF Podcast. Find out more at www.universalstudentfund.org and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Universal Student Fund. 